Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon series I did on the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoy. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Rob Dalrymple. I'm the pastor here, and it's good to see you all this morning. And I had a wonderful trip to Guam, just to let you know. It was a great opportunity and a great time of fellowship with some brothers and sisters in Christ uh, and teaching there in Guam. And just to let you know, Karuna Carr has been accepted into the seminary uh, formally, but because of immigration concerns and issues, he wasn't able to travel to Guam just yet, but we did have him in the class. We, we uh, videoed him in, so he was at every session and was, was part of the course. We want to thank you for that as we continue to progress towards getting him an education as well. This morning we're going to go back to our study in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we're going to be in chapter 6. I've said in the past that if someone were to tell you that Christianity were illegal, uh, and that you got one month to turn in all your Bibles and all your religious goods and all your religious items and, and everything, and turn it all in, um, and you decided that maybe that you would uh, tear a couple pages out of your Bible, and that maybe you'd stuff them in your pocket a little bit, and uh, you know, that the best pages to tear out would be Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount. If you tear those three pages out, or those three chapters out, and you, you hide them in your heart, or maybe you decide, you know what, I, I don't have, I'm a little worried about doing that. Maybe what I'll do is I'll memorize as much as I can. And if you were to memorize Luke 6, 20 through 48 through 49, uh, that one chapter, those 30 verses or so, uh, condense Matthew's Sermon on the Mount into one smaller section. Maybe just hide them in your heart and memorize them. And that's this morning the passage that we're going to be at. And uh, if you recall, as as I planned doing a study of the Gospel of Luke a number of months back, I thought, well, we'll do Luke for Advent, Luke chapters 1 and 2, and uh, during the Christmas season. And then uh, January, February, March, we'll just continue Luke. And I thought, I'll just do Luke so that when we get to Easter, we'll be at Luke 24, and we'll do the Easter passage. And here we are in February, and then I hit this passage, and I'm like... I can't rush through Luke. <laughs> we, we, can't, we, we need to slow down. We need, we need to ponder and meditate upon this passage. So we're going to be challenged uh, by Jesus this morning. And I titled the series, Who is This Man? And I think what we're going to find out is whatever, uh, whoever this man is, Jesus, he's dangerous. Um, I titled the message, Don't Shoot the Messenger. That's me. Um, Jesus is radical. And the gospel of Jesus is a radical gospel, and I think too often we've tamed Jesus. We've tamed the message, and we've made it something that it's presentable to others, and it's something I can be comfortable with. And I think as we're going to start reckoning with Jesus in, in Luke chapter 6, we're going to realize that we can't just um, be tamed and comfortable uh, there. So be prepared to be a little uneasy, and then at the end of the day, don't shoot the messenger. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the gospel of Luke. Chapter 6, it's page 729 in your pew Bibles. As we continue to search, who is this man? Uh, Let me give a little context for the message this morning. And um, The gospel, I've said before, is Jesus is Lord. Uh, The implications of the fact that Jesus is Lord means that Caesar is not. Uh, I'm not, you're not, money's not, wealth is not, pleasure's not, power is not. Jesus is Lord. And Jesus announces that he's Lord. He's announcing the fact that the kingdom of God is here. And what's interesting is that the kingdom of God is perhaps the central proclamation of Jesus in the Gospels. The Gospels are full of the kingdom of God and the theology of the kingdom of God. Even the book of Acts, by the way, begins with the proclamation of the kingdom of God and it ends 
and Acts 28 with Paul in Rome proclaiming that the kingdom of God has reached now Rome. Acts is framed with the theology of the kingdom of God. Yet for many Christians, we have a very poor or even lacking understanding of what the kingdom of God even is. So very briefly, the kingdom of God is a kingdom in which God is the king. God reigns. And that's what Jesus is proclaiming. I am here as God in the flesh to proclaim that the kingdom of God is among you. It's present in the person of Jesus. The place from which God reigns, by the way, is His temple. That is the place where God's throne is. And Jesus was the temple of God among us, the place of God's presence, the place of God's throne. And here's what's important. In Jesus, God has begun His reign. But now that Jesus has died, ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit has now come down and has begun to dwell in us. And as the New Testament emphatically says, we are the temple of the living God, which means that we now are the place from which and through which God continues to reign here on the earth. We know that God reigns through His people, and this is the way that God has always done things, by the way, even when we go back to the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, God said, let us make man in our image. The idea is, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. They're going to rule in my stead, in my place. They're going to rule for me and make me known to the rest of creation. It's with that in mind that Paul says in Colossians 3, let me bring it up just for a moment, verses 9 and 10, he says, Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in, the knowledge, in knowledge in the image of its creator. You see, in the New Testament is this understanding that we are the image of God, and as such, we are to rule over His creation. 1 Corinthians 15 says, in verse 15, 25, Paul says that Jesus must continue to reign until He's put all His enemies under His feet. Uh, the, the translation, He must reign, is in the Greek, it's, it's, it's a present tense verb which typically has this understanding of continuing on. Uh, he, he, mu he must reign. He must continue to reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. And the way he continues to reign is through us, uh, through his people. The first fill in the blank on your outline is this. The new law that Jesus is proclaiming is not only to love your neighbor, but also your enemy. The new law that Jesus is proclaiming is not only to love your neighbor, but also your enemy. Jesus now proclaims that the new law is now in place. And it's this new law that he's proclaiming as not only to love your neighbor, but also your enemy. Uh, again, the context in helping us understand uh, what's going on is this understanding that God desires to reign through his people. And, and, and it begins by calling Israel. It begins by calling Abraham. Abraham, because Adam and Eve disobeyed and they didn't fulfill my purpose uh, of being my image bearers, I'm going to call you and choose you to be my people. And then we realize that that fulfillment, of course, comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And so let's go to Luke chapter 6 now. I'm going to start in verse 17. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 17. It says, He, being Jesus, went down with them and stood in a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal excuse me, region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and all the people all tried to touch him, because power, excuse me, was coming from him and healing them. <clears throat> Verse 20. 
looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and insult you, and reject your name as evil. Because of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. Because greater is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. And woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Verses 27 and 28, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you, and bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Looking at this passage a little bit more carefully, here's the first thing that I want us to note, and that is that Luke 6, verses 20 through 23, have four blesseds. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who weep now. And blessed are you when people hate you. Each of these four blesseds is followed by the word, by, by the word in, in most of our English translations, it's four. Uh, it's not the normal word for four. The, the, the word itself could be translated as, as because or since. And, and if you add the word because here, it'll make sense. Uh, blessed are you who are poor because yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now because you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now because you will laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you because... That is how their ancestors treated the false prophet. The word for is a good translation. It's not a problem at all. But the word itself has a stronger meaning of because or since. The next three verses, verses 24 through 26, then contrast it with four woes. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well fed. Uh, now, well to you who woe to you who laugh now and woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. And then again, each of these four woes is followed by this word that's because or since. Because you've already received your comfort. Because you will go hungry. Because you will mourn and weep. And because that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Four blessings and four woes. If you're an Israelite and uh, uh, listening to Jesus, of course, it's going to remind you of the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is the law given to the people of Israel by Moses. If you obey my law, God says, I will bless you. I have called you to be my people. I have called you to carry my mission to the nations. And if you do that, I will bless you. And if you don't, you'll reap the curses. Because you're going to blaspheme my name before the nations, so you must be cursed. And it's his blessings and curses that Jesus, be, that Jesus uh, uh, proclaims. Uh, now let's compare them even further. Now the first woe and the, the first blessing. The first blessing is blessed are you who are poor. And the first woe is woe to you who are rich. The second blessing and the second woe is the blessed are you who hunger now. And woe to you who are well fed now. And the third one is blessed are you who weep now. And the third woe is woe to you who laugh now. And the fourth one is blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. And woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. And the last two fours in those two verses are, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets, and that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. We begin to realize that Jesus is comparing and contrasting the blessings and the woes. And so our question is, well, well what does this mean? And the first thing I want to point out is, is that blessing means the one who is the object of grace and not the one who has an easy life. Blessing means the one who is the object of grace and not the one who has an easy life. See, sometimes we've made the gospel 
uh, something so simplistic and overly simplistic. And we tell people, you need to have Jesus. And if you have Jesus, your life will be better. I, I promise you, everything's going to be great and fine and dandy. And I'm not sure that that's the Jesus that we read in the Scriptures. Because the Jesus we read in the Scriptures says, I'm going to give you grace. You'll be blessed. But you're going to be blessed when you mourn. You're going to be blessed when you weep. You're going to be blessed when you're hungry. And the ones who are blessed are the poor. Jesus himself told his disciples that if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you also. Suffering for the cause of, the, of Christ is actually the lot of the Christian life. After all, think about it. Jesus is Lord means Caesar is not. And Caesar ain't going to like that. And Jesus is Lord means I'm not. And sometimes I don't like that. And you don't like that, and we don't like that, and the world doesn't like that. The next question becomes, well, what does Luke mean by the poor? Uh, blessed are those who are poor. I, I posted, if you saw my Facebook feed uh, a few days ago, I posted a, a, a statement. I said, I said uh, w tell me what Jesus means by this, and don't look at anybody else's comments until you, until you made your own comments below. What does Jesus mean by blessed are you who are poor? And many of the answers, many of them, were, well, you mean poor in spirit. You mean poor in spirit. You mean poor in spirit. And so I replied, I said, no. Matthew's gospel says blessed are the poor in spirit, but Luke says blessed are the poor. Well, one of the things we do is we simply, we simplify and we spiritualize it by saying, oh, it, it, it means poor in spirit. And, and by the way, it, you're right, it does in one sense mean poor in spirit. That, that meaning is there. Uh, um, but the spiritual understanding of poor in spirit is a, a person who, who recognizes their need and dependence for Christ, who recognizes that we can't save ourselves, who recognizes that our treasures, our wealth, our power, all that we have is not going to get us anywhere. It's not sufficient. And we sacrifice it all before Christ. That's to be poor in spirit. And that's true. But Luke says poor. He not only says blessed are the poor, he contrasts it with woe to you who are rich. And he says blessed are you who hunger now. And he contrasts that with those of you who are well fed now. Luke is talking about the poor. And we begin to realize that this is actually the theme in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke begins in chapters 1 and 2 with the birth announcements of John the Baptist and of Jesus. Uh, and as we discuss those chapters, what we recognize was that John the Baptist is the one who comes and anoints Jesus, just like Samuel is the one who anoints David. John the Baptist's birth is compared to the birth of Samuel. Samuel is the prophet who anoints the king David, and John the Baptist is the prophet who anoints the king Jesus. Luke's Gospel is beginning by proclaiming that Jesus is the king. The kingdom of God has come. Chapter 3 in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is then anointed by, John the or by the Spirit, of course, at the baptism of John the Baptist. He then goes off in the wilderness where he suffers and, and is tempted in the wilderness, just like Israel went in the wilderness, but Jesus was faithful in the wilderness. And then Luke 3 ends with a genealogy. Luke chapter 4 then begins by Jesus proclaiming in a synagogue in Nazareth, that the, that the gospel is being fulfilled in your presence, that, that the prophecies of Isaiah, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and the Spirit of the Lord upon me, and he's anointed me, means I'm the king. Because the anointed one in Israel is the king. I'm the king. The kingdom of God has come. And he proclaims in that synagogue in Nazareth, the first public proclamation of his ministry, that the gospel is proclaimed among you, and it's good news to the poor. That's chapter 4. His first public proclamation is that the gospel 
is good news to the poor. Chapter 5, Luke calls his first disciples. And by calling the disciples, and of course one of them was a tax collector, and he eats with the tax collectors and the, and the sinners and the Pharisees, and this upsets the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders. What are you doing eating with these people? You're eating with the wrong people. And Jesus tells them, I'm sorry, you need to exchange your wineskins for new wineskins. The gospel that I'm presenting, Jesus says, the, the, the message of God that I have is not going to fit into your old wineskins because you failed to be the people that God had called you to be. And I'm calling you to be the people that God has called you to be. And you're going to need new wineskins for that because the new wine that I'm presenting won't fit into your old wineskins. And now we go to Luke chapter 6. The first real public proclamation as to what the content of the gospel is. And it's good news to the poor. And as we keep going through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to realize that this theme of the poor and the rich continues. Luke chapter 16, Jesus is going to tell a parable. And in that parable, he says this. Verse 19, there's a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, and he joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate and covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. And besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus received bad things, but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there's a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that no one may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they may not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. We begin to realize that Luke doesn't soften the poor and the rich throughout his gospel to this spiritual dimension only. The idea of separating a spiritual and, and, and physical and, 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 and social and economic and political, that wouldn't even have made sense to Luke, by the way. It, it's a modern world that we live in where we separate the spirituality. This is my religion and this is my work. Uh, this is my beliefs over here and, and, and this is, my, this is my, my, my social over here. This is my political views over here and this is my religious over here. Is my mic not working? Okay, that's why. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. All right. Th thanks, James. Is that better? There we go. Um, all right. So uh, let me repeat for those of you who are listening online. Um, uh, the idea of separating physical and spiritual, of separating political and spiritual, religious and, 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 and social, wouldn't have made sense to Luke. It wouldn't have made sense to Jesus. So we tend to spiritualize this passage by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, and think, I'm okay because I'm poor in spirit because I recognize my need for Jesus. I'm okay. And then we go to Luke and like, no, I don't think Luke wants us to stop there. Now, let me add one more point to it. The idea of weeping. Blessed are those who weep now, Jesus says. Weeping is often the result of a person suffering injustice. 
Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, Psalm chapter 126, Psalm chapter 137. Weeping is often associated with a person suffering injustice. Laughing and wealth is often at the expense of the poor. Let me see if I can say that again and explain that. Well, laughing and wealth is often at the expense of the poor and of the oppressed. You see, to say Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not would have been a problem for Rome. Rome was an empire that was built on the back of slaves. The, the economy was such that there was the wealthy, there was the elite. And, and by the way, let me, let me clarify. The Gospel of Luke was written to one of these elite people. Theophilus is addressed as the most excellent Theophilus. He's the recipient of the Gospel of Luke. He's probably the one who pays for Luke to write this Gospel. Uh, but most excellent seems to be an indication that he's a member of what's called the equestrian order. The equestrian order were the elite, or wealthy enough to own horses order in Rome. And the Roman economy was such that you had the, the wealthy and the elite, and then you had the slaves. We don't know how many slaves there were, but estimates are that there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Well, Rome had a problem in the city of Rome itself, and that was, how do we keep this mass of poor people, how, how do we keep them functioning so that they can continue to... Um, uh, uh, subsidize and, and, and foster the, this, this wealthy and the elite, uh, the plebeians as they were known as, the lower class, the poor, some were slaves and some were just poor. How do we keep them content? And the problem was, Rome doesn't provide enough grain to feed the people in Rome. The millions of people, in, uh, the million people or more in the city of Rome that are, that are poor and lower class, they have no food. Because Rome's, you know, it, it makes grapes and wineries and things like that. So what Rome had to do was they decided that we will offer every person who lives in Rome subsidized grain. Free grain. You live in Rome, we'll give you free grain. And that meant that kept that lower, poorer class of people content so that they can continue the, the, to foster the wealthy and the aristocrats. And the way they did it was they brought in grain from all over the Roman Empire. Now, when you bring in grain from all over the Roman Empire, from Egypt and Syria and everywhere else, and you bring that grain to Rome, subsidized by the government, which means the government ain't paying those crop growers in Egypt enough money. The other problem that that happens is it means that the supply of grain in the rest of the empire is now diminished. Because a lot of the grain is going to Rome. And when you diminish the grain supply in the rest of the empire, what do you do to the price of grain? You inflate it. And grain is what the poor need, what the average person needs. To, and all of a sudden now you've, and you've created more poor. You've created more poverty. Rome was a system in which uh, the, 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 the means through which you keep the rich and the powerful in power was at the expense of the poor. Richard Foster wrote a book I've mentioned to you a few times called The Freedom of Simplicity. And I've told you about this book before. And, I, and I've challenged you that if you want to read this, it's going to rock your world. Um, he wrote this book, I believe, back in the 70s. I think it might have been the first... I, I can't actually read the writing on there without my glasses, um, which could be a problem later on. But um, uh, it's a uh, the, the, the freedom of simplicity. One of the things that Richard Foster says in, there, in, in the book is that the idea that we often have in the West is that what we need to do is just pull the rest of the world up to our level of, 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 of existence. If we can help the rest of the world live to our standard of living, then everything would be fine and dandy. And he presents a problem, and he says, here's the problem. 
If the rest of the world were to attempt to live on our level of consumption, it is projected that all known world resources of petroleum, tin, zinc, natural gas, lead, copper, tungsten, gold, and mercury would be exhausted in 10 years. There's not enough resources in the world, he's saying, for the whole world to live the way we live. It's not a matter of bringing the poor up to our level of existence. There's not enough resources in the world to do that. We have to actually lower our level in order to bring equality. There's another book I've referenced a few times. I know some of you here have read the book. It's called When Helping Hurts. Uh, it's a wonderful book. On, on give, uh, it says, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself. The book talks about the fact that most of the time when we do help for the poor, whether it's governments or churches or, or other institutions and organizations, we actually create more problems than we're actually helping. Uh, some of you may have heard of, you know, I think it's called Tom's Shoes, that ha had this program that said, if you buy a pair of our shoes, we're going to give a pair of shoes to someone in the world that, that needs a pair of shoes. A great idea. You buy a pair of shoes, and we'll take your money, and we'll give a pair of shoes to somebody else in, in, in the world that needs a pair of shoes. And by the way, having a pair of shoes is important because diseases and everything else that comes in through the soil and everything else, the poor need shoes. The problem is that when you go to a community and you just bring them a thousand pairs of shoes, you put the local shoe business guy out of business. You're hurt, hurt, hurting the local economy. What we need to do when we help the poor is to help the local economy. Help the local people. In other words, when we do justice and help the poor, we need to do so in a way that actually helps the poor and not hurts them. And it makes, in the book on page 92, it makes this comment. And it says, what happens when society crams historically oppressed, uneducated, unemployed, and relatively young human beings into high-rise buildings, takes away their leaders, provides them with inferior education, health care, and employment systems, and then pays them not to work. We're not helping the poor, we're making things worse. In other words, it's sometimes not the case that the poor are, bad, are poor because they've made, they've made bad choices. I'm where I am. Another way we justify our wealth and our privilege here is, well, because I worked hard at it. And I got what I got because I deserved it. And there's truth to that, and I don't mean to deny that. But sometimes the poor don't have, not because they've made bad choices, but because they're in difficult, unfair circumstances. The systems of the world are set up so that the poor remain poor, and the rich remain rich. That is essentially, and generally speaking at least, the nature of governments. To keep the rich rich, and the result is to make the poor and keep them poor. Now the result, of course, is that there's a danger for us as Christians. We can look at Jesus. Are you uncomfortable yet, by the way? Uh, we can look at this passage, um, and we can spiritualize it. He means poor in spirit, and it's true, but this is not all that Jesus is saying. It's true, but it's allowed us to sit comfortably in our churches. But Jesus didn't tell us to do that. He told us to bring the kingdom of God. And Jesus was implementing the kingdom of God. Uh, I, I, I preached a number of, uh, a couple years ago, uh, and we're going to get to the same story in the Gospel of Luke in a few chapters from now. So in a month or two again, we're going to come to the story of the feeding of the 5,000. 
And the feeding of the 5,000 in the Gospel of Mark, which I preached on several years ago here, um, begins by the disciples going to Jesus and saying, Hey, Jesus, we've got 5,000 people here. We need to send them home. Because it's getting late in the day and the markets are going to close. And, if the, and you know, they don't have refrigerators back in the day, so they have no food. They need to buy food for the evening. Send them home, Jesus. And Jesus tells them, you give them something to eat. We read the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and we're captured by the fact that he took a kid's lunch that had a couple loaves of bread and a couple fish and he multiplies it and he feeds 5,000 people. And we focus on the miracle, but we often look past the beginning of the passage where Jesus says, you give them something to eat. I think the disciples are like, Jesus, it would cost us almost a year's wages to feed them. Where are we going to get the money to feed these people? How can we feed these people? We skip over that part. And we focus on the miracle. But the story is this. Jesus was telling the disciples, I am the source of provision. You have all you need to feed the people because you have me. I'm the bread of life. Watch what I can do. I can feed them. Now you go do it. The purpose of Jesus was to show us the kingdom of God, to bring the kingdom of God, to usher it in, and then to commission us to now go do the work of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is good news to the poor. And now we're the people of God called to set the world right, to proclaim justice and advocate for peace. That means we can't just preach and, and teach about some spiritual reality that if you, if you come to know Jesus and, and deny yourself that you'll get to go to heaven someday. That's true and good, but we must implement the kingdom of God in what Jesus says. So how do we do it? <clears throat> well, these Beatitudes are, again, not just these good spiritual statements that we apply to my spiritual walk only. They're indications of the people that we are called to be and the mission that we're called to carry out. And he Wright says it this way, Blessings on the poor in spirit means that you will be one of those through whom God's kingdom, heaven's rule, begins to appear on earth as in heaven. The Beatitudes are the agenda for kingdom people. It's our mission. There's a spiritual side of the story that says that we're to take our wealth, our power, and our resources and submit them to Christ. And to recognize our need and our dependence upon Jesus. And there's the kingdom side of it. And the kingdom side of it is this. Maybe God's given us the wealth and the power and the provisions so that we can be the advocates for those who don't. For those who don't have. I've illustrated it this way. I've said in the past that you know, the scriptures are clear that if we are followers of Jesus, persecution and suffering will come our way. It's the lot of the Christian life. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And, and then we, 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 we take that message here in the Western evangelical world and we go, but I don't really suffer. I'm not really persecuted. And, you know, and the, and if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you also. And, and we see over and over again, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. We, we find all these verses and we go, but I don't experience that. And there's a number of ways to deal with that. And one of the ways to deal with that I've said before is this. Maybe God has given us the position of power and privilege so that we can advocate for those who don't. We have the most powerful government in the world that we are citizens of. 
And we can lobby that government to say, hey, you need to tell the leader of North Korea to let those Christians go, to stop doing what you're doing, to stop persecuting the Christians in China and Nigeria. And, and I don't know if you heard, but another hundred girls were, were, were kidnapped in, uh, by Boko Haram in Nigeria again this week. 300 girls were kidnapped several years ago, of which over 100 have still not been returned. 100 girls have been missing from their homes for three years. And now another 100 girls have been kidnapped within this last week. Maybe God's given us a position of privilege and power so that we can advocate for those who don't have. Maybe God has given us wealth and privilege and power so that we can advocate and overthrow and undermine these systems. Richard Foster in his book Freedom of Simplicity says that when you, live to li when you learn to live a life of simplicity, it's freeing. That's why he called the title of his book Freedom of Simplicity. He defines simplicity as this. Simplicity is to seek first the kingdom of God and the right righteousness of his kingdom. That's it. A simple life is simply seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then he gives a couple points that I want to finish off with this morning. Number one, he says simplicity means that we recognize that all we have is a gift from God. Yes, you might have worked hard. Yes, you might have pulled yourself up by your own boots. You might have, we might have done all these things, but in all reality, all that we have is from God. And Jesus said, go sell all you have and come follow me. Secondly, he says, what we have is to be cared for by God. In other words, it's God's business to care for what we have. We are agents of God's kingdom. God has given us resources, money, power, wealth, etc. to use for the sake of his kingdom. And then thirdly, what we have needs to be available to others to meet the needs of the poor, the minorities, and the underprivileged. And I would encourage you then, and all of us, that we need to step out of our comfort zone. Because you see, the reality is this. The gospel of Jesus, the gospel we see throughout the entire New Testament, undermines the systems of the world. If you take the ethic of Paul in the books of Ephesians and Colossians, and you apply it, you cannot have slaves any longer. People say, well, the Bible advocates slavery. You know, Paul even says, uh, you know, slaves, submit to your masters. He does, but if you look carefully at what Paul says, he radically undermines the system of slavery. Because he says, masters, do not be harsh with your slaves. And the reality is, in that world, you have to be harsh with your slaves to keep them in check. If one slave starts to rebel, you've got to let him know who's boss so that nobody else rebels. You see, if you apply the Christian ethic, you really actually undermine the system of slavery. And when you apply the Christian ethic, which we'll see next week is love your neighbor as yourself and even love your enemy, it may actually undermine the economic system that we have. And we that are wealthy become uncomfortable with that. Because it challenges us, taking away our security and our blessings and the things that we have and the things that we've worked hard for. And Jesus says, look, they're mine. 
Just trust in me. And the passage in Luke 6, from which, we, from which Richard Foster gets the freedom of simplicity, where Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Jesus says, why do you worry about food? Why do you worry about clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, nor they reap, nor gather in the barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Look at the lilies of the field. God, if God so arrays them, they're arrayed even more beautifully than Solomon in all of his splendor. And if God so arrays them, will he not care for you, O men of little faith? So I titled this message, Don't Shoot the Messenger. But in all reality, here's the thing. Jesus himself says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Because that's how they spoke about the false prophets. You see, the false prophets throughout the Old Testament said what everybody wanted to hear. They preached good news and all is well. And the prophets of God speak the words of Christ and they're difficult and they're challenging. And this man, Jesus, is radical and his kingdom is radical. Let's pray. Father, I don't come here this morning before my brothers and sisters with any supposition that I have figured this all out because I don't get it either. And I struggle with this as well. I'm going to go home and eat a good meal this afternoon. And I've got a beautiful home. But we recognize, Lord Jesus, that all that we have is yours. And you may or may not be telling us to sell it all and give it all away. Yeah, that may not be the answer. It probably isn't the answer. That's just too easy sometimes. And then we lose our positions of power and privilege by which we can actually help and advocate for those who are needy. But Lord, if anybody in here this morning is being asked to give it all away, may they do so in faith to follow you. And may the rest of us take what we have and recognize that it's yours. It's yours. It's yours to help those who are needy, as we're going to hear about with World Renew later on this morning, those who have suffered harm and catastrophes, those who are suffering the violence of war, those who are suffering because of radicals and terrorism. And Lord, help us not just to rant about these things, but to advocate for just causes. And somehow, Lord, to find the balance of doing so in love. Because love is when we love the one who curses us. It's so easy to be angry at those who are propagating injustice for those who are, who are bringing about all these things, and yet you haven't given us that option either. So, Lord, you just help us to figure this out. As the disciples pray in Luke 17, Lord Jesus, increase our faith. That's our prayer this morning. Increase our faith. And if we increase our faith by maybe increasing our giving and the sacrificial living, maybe we increase our faith by going through our homes and figuring out the things that we just don't need and we give them to the poor and we give them to those who don't have what they, what they need. And maybe we, we, we increase our faith by by thinking about how we can advocate to our governments and our political powers that be 
that they do what is right and what is just and not listen to just the big corporations that are funding their campaigns. And Lord, that makes us uneasy, it makes us uncomfortable. But I suppose sometimes being uneasy and uncomfortable means we're in a good spot because we're beginning to grapple more deeply with what the kingdom of God really is all about. So Lord Jesus, we ask that you'll teach us not only who is this man, but then you'll give us the faith to follow the lamb wherever you lead us. That the gospel of Jesus might begin from this house and be proclaimed to the nations. That they might know that you are the Lord, God Almighty. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.